Patient Brain Talks. I'm Deborah Kahn, founder of Being Patient. Well, in these extraordinary times of COVID-19, a lot of us are worried about the prospects of our loved ones with dementia going to hospital. And with any hospitalization, it can increase the risk of something called delirium. And that is why um, it is so necessary uh, for caregivers to really take an active role in participation um, if, if your loved one gets hospitalized. Well, our next guest has um, written about this topic and his name is Dr. Jason Karlowish. Um, he joins us from UPenn and has written on the topic. Jason, welcome. Thank you, Deborah. It's great to be here. Greetings from Philadelphia. So let's just start with just very basics. Um, what is delirium exactly? Delirium describes an acute confusional state. Simply put, the person doesn't seem like the way they used to be. There's been some sort of change. Um, delirium can take two forms. We, uh, the hyperactive form, patients quite agitated, confused, oftentimes physically agitated. Or the hypoactive form, the patient is sort of quiet, uh, uh, withdrawn. The common feature, though, in delirium, the key word is they're inattentive. They're not paying attention like they used to. So why is why does hospitalization actually increase? I mean, it's often, I guess, uh, delirium does occur in hospitals. Is that correct? Delirium, delirium occurs because a person's brain has been acutely insulted by um, an illness uh, bad enough that they may be required going to hospital. Um, so they're but delirium is sort of a product of many different factors coming together. An aging brain gets acutely ill, goes to hospital, change in environment, a host of other changes, a host of other noxious stimuli to the brain, some of the medications that are given. And what all that adds up to is this acute confusional state that develops, which we call delirium. So, for example, you can get delirious if you're ill and at home. It doesn't have to be in hospital but there's something about hospitalization that makes it even more likely to occur. Does the, um, is, are dementia, people with dementia more at risk of delirium? Absolutely. Persons living with dementia um, are at greater risk than someone of the same age uh, who doesn't have dementia to develop delirium. Um, the kind of the way I like to think about it is, you know, um, delirium is to Alzheimer's disease and dementia like pain is to cancer. There are many different diseases that cause pain, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, osteoarthritis, etc. But there's something about cancer, which we all know has a unique pain experience. And also cancer is more very quite likely to cause pain. And that's the same kind of relationship between dementia caused by Alzheimer's disease or other dementing illnesses like Parkinson's disease and delirium. You don't have to have those diseases to get delirium. But if you do have those diseases, you're at a greater risk of developing delirium. Do we know exactly what's going on in the brain um, to cause de delirium? It's an ongoing area of research. In other words, you know, what's the neuroanatomic uh, neurobiology going on? That's an area of very uh, emergent science. Um, but we do know that this is real. This happens. This is not um, uh, normal. This represents something very bad acutely occurring in the brain.
So um, I've always thought of delirium as almost like hallucinations, like, you know, because we use the, the term in English, like uh, you're, you're, you're delirious, right? You're not making sense. So it, does it present itself much like that in, when, you know, a patient is hospitalized? Well, there's a certain wisdom to that vernacular understanding when people say you're delirious, meaning, you know, there's something very different about the way you're acting now compared to the way you usually act. Um, and in the hypervigilant, the agitated form of delirium, patients often develop elaborate and very frightening delusions. So um, a common one will be that they think they're in prison, actually, or in jail and, and will cry out for help and get me out of this jail and may construct elaborate delusions about where they are and, uh, uh, and, and, and usually it's persecutorial beliefs and things like that and can become very physically agitated. I got to get out of here, try to get out of bed. They'll pull out lines. They'll attempt to, 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 to uh, uh, get out of their bed and go out of the hallway. So it can be extremely disruptive. In contrast, in the hypoactive form, the patient's sort of just not very alert, um, inattentive to conversation, sort of fading in and out. Um, another key feature of delirium is it waxes and wanes. So the patient will be very agitated, et cetera. And then an hour or two later, not so agitated. Oh, everything's fine. And then two hours later, they're agitated again. So this kind of waxing and waning quality is another hallmark of the delirium syndrome. Yeah, I mean, this is a, I mean, you know, we're all facing this um, right now, a worry over um, loved ones, um, the possibility of hospitalization during the time of pandemic. Um, so we, we've just gotten a question in asking, like, how do you reduce or mitigate delirium um, if your loved one um, is uh, with dementia is hospitalized? Is there anything we can do to prevent it? Yeah, great question. Because the answer is we can prevent it. We can't guarantee that it won't develop if you take these steps. But science has proven that if you take these steps, you can reduce the chance that someone develops delirium. And if they do, you can reduce its severity and duration. And that's really important. So there's something you can do about it. So what can you do about it? Well, it starts with almost basic care, um, uh, uh, getting good sleep, um, not being woken up repeatedly throughout the night by the roommate's television or noise in the hallway from uh, cell phones and pill crushers and things like that, um, being adequately hydrated, um, avoiding medications that can uh, precipitate confusion, particularly the anticholinergic medications like Benadryl, diphenhydramine, um, being uh, uh, reassured and reoriented by people who can communicate with you effectively. Um, and that brings us to a, what prompted me to write my essay, which is, you know, um, the value of someone who knows someone well, a caregiver, to say there's something wrong with my dad, there's something wrong with my brother, my mother, my wife, and then to bring people, make them aware of this change, and then to be there to reassure and redirect. Because, for example, um, if, if the person starts to develop an agitated delirium, you need someone there at the bedside to help reassure and redirect them. If they have to have an IV line in there, you want to be there to gently keep them from pulling on the IV line. The last thing that you want to do, for example, is restrain the person and tie them to the bed. They'll just get more delirious. And I say that because we used to actually restrain patients who developed delirium. I remember in my training, it was a standard order, wrist restraints and a posy vest. Right. 
Now, this is one of the things that you do write about too, and you stress that um, the importance of the caregiver really partnering with the hospital in the care. Um, but I mean, we're living in extraordinary times with COVID-19. How, how possible is that? I mean, you know, husbands and wives aren't even able to be with one another. I, I, you know, it, it's yeah. hard to imagine hospitals at this point partnering up with you. Well, it isn't, it isn't. Um couple points. Number one, um, this was all my writing on this was all prompted by me um, uh, receiving an email from uh, a hospital that would care for a family member of mine. And the email was an update on the visitation rules of that hospital. And um, they were allowing people in to if they were pregnant, if they were at the end of life. um, And uh, if they were a child, if the patient was a child, the parents could come in. And I was struck by um, the absence of allowing in the caregiver as a visitor. And then I was struck by the very word visitor, because what it occurred to me is it's not about bringing the paper and flowers and having a chat and then heading back home. There's something about a parent. There's something about um, being present at the bedside of someone who's dying where it's about care. And I I mean, actually, we should just focus on the parent one. You know, I don't think any parent would say my child's been admitted to hospital. They'll call me when they're ready to be picked up. And no hospital would do that either. And in the care of individuals, adults with cognitive impairment, they're not children. and, and, And but yet there is a certain logic to say to the extent that their cognitive problems interfere with their ability to get care and they can develop worse cognitive problems like delirium. Why wouldn't we want to have? a caregiver there with them. So you've raised a very important point that we're in a pandemic. I mean, this is an infectious uh, virus that has no effective treatment other than um, care and palliation until you recover from it. Um, And so why would you let anyone else in the hospital environment um, other than the person who's there because they're ill, whether it's because of COVID or heart failure, um, uh, uh, pneumonia or some other non-COVID illness? And I see that side, and I guess if there's one thing I'm trying to open up as a more mature conversation to say there are certain people that might need to come into the hospital who aren't visitors, but they're caregivers. And in respect for that, we should expect from them responsible behavior. In other words, you're not coming in here to wander around and get ice chips and get find some more crackers and juices and you know chat up at the front desk. If, if you're here as a caregiver, you're here as a caregiver, namely stay in the room and <clears throat> provide the, excuse me, the reassurance the person needs. And if they develop delirium, be there to help care for them in that. Yeah. So that was my point. Uh, um, you mentioned um, your family member, and I read an article you had written which mentioned your uncle is that who has um, right. dementia. Yeah. Uh, so, actually, it's mild cognitive impairment caused by Alzheimer's. So, yeah. Okay. So, just tell us a little bit about your experience with him um, in because uh, he was hospitalized, I believe, for a heart problem. Was it? Exactly, exactly. A lot of the vividness of this came to me because about a year ago, um, he was hospitalized for a heart attack um, and uh, received medications uh, as part of one of his procedures that are known to increase the risk of delirium. And even before he got those medicines, I could tell he was changing um, because I think of the acute inflammatory reaction that's caused by a heart attack. And then he gets these medications and so already he was beginning to develop delirium. 
And then he gets these medications and it becomes very obvious he's having this acute confusional state bordering on the hyperactive form of it. And, you know, I stayed there at the bedside the entire time in order to reassure, redirect, um, allow him to get fed, uh, got, got him up and walked him around. And I am convinced, I wouldn't want to do the experiment to figure this out, but I'm convinced that I not been there, he would have gotten sicker. And I'm not confident that if he had left hospital, he could have gone home um, and been still at home now living independently. So it was a vivid example to me of the value of my presence at the bedside. Um, and so when I got this email from his hospital, because I'm on their email list saying, you know, essentially saying, if your uncle gets admitted now, you can't be there. I thought, well, now, wait a minute. You know, um, uh, uh, that, that is not going to be good care. And so I'm trying to open up this conversation about what's going to be good care. What? Why does delirium increase death rates? Because um, that's the other thing that you point out is that you have a higher chance of death if you're suffering from delirium in the hospital. Why is that? In the same way, I think that um, worsening cognitive impairment increases the likelihood of someone dying. And why is that? There's a host of factors going on. You're not able to adequately comply with your therapies and take them. Um, you extend the period of time that you're in the hospital. You extend the period of time that you're in bed. And we know if you take a, an older adult, 80 plus years old, put them to bed for a urinary tract infection and say to them after four days of being in the bed, get up and leave, walk out. They'll say, I, I'm so unsteady, I, you know, because they've lost muscle mass and they have just so little threshold. So it's one of these multifactorial um, events that start to occur that lead to this cascade of events that in many, sadly, some cases lead to death and certainly lead to worsening disability. Is, is delirium, though, a temporary con condition or can it last for longer periods of time? So, so it is temporary. Over time, people do recover. Um, granted, the longer you have it, the more severe it is, the longer it will take to recover. And sadly, many folks, um, particularly those who go into delirium with having dementia, they never get back to the way they were beforehand. The family says, you know, he's just never been the same since that. He's not as bad, but he's just never been the same. Um, and the recovery can take a long time. In other words, someone who gets, quote, better finally from their delirium in hospital goes home. Families will still notice they're having trouble making decisions compared to the way they used to. And it can take several weeks um, for them to finally kind of be back to the way they were. I should make one point about this visitation issue just to develop it. Um, so, you know, that was one hospital's rule. And so my staff and I went and looked at other hospitals. And sure enough, we found many hospitals have, all hospitals have some sort of visitor policy. And what we found was great variety in what the policies were. Some of them laid it out very clearly. Some of them had no policy. They said it's the discretion of the staff. They just, that's it. Others had um, included that a, a, a visitor can be someone who uh, is, uh, uh, for a patient who has intellectual disability or troubles with communication. Um, We've, I found online that the National Health Service in Great Britain acknowledges the role of the caregiver for persons with dementia um, or persons with developmental disability. So there's a variety out there, and some hospitals recognize this up front, some are silent to it, and others kind of leave it vague as to whether or not it will be at their discretion. So I, I think it, in, in the time of COVID-19, um, you know, a lot of people are are really worried if the patient or the caregiver gets sick, what that means um, for 
the structure of care period. Um, so just first, in, at Penn, are you hearing stories of people with dementia going to hospital um, for COVID-19? Um, I have not heard stories of people going to hospital because of COVID-19. Actually, yes, we have. I take that back. You know, I, I, I just, uh, yes, yes, we have. As well as people going to, what I was going to say, I have heard of people going to hospital because of non-COVID-19 problems that require going to hospital. And, you know, this is, this pandemic is not going to lift. And so we have to start thinking about in the coming months, um, people are going to get ill. They're going to need to go to hospital. I mean, for now, people are sort of managing and whatnot, but already we're having people go to hospital for non-COVID-19 problems or they're going to hospital because of COVID-19. Yeah. So what, what is your recommendation for the caregiver when they approach the hospital? I mean, I can imagine how daunting it must be today when you're not even probably allowed past the front door and there's probably a huge sign saying no one but patients and, you know, COVID yep. symptoms here and others over here. So like, how do you even like get to a person or how do you handle this? How do you manage it in the context of today? Yeah. So that's a great question, because I think the answer is um, one needs to see all sides here. OK, uh, and I've I've uh, been getting some emails from caregivers who have shared their stories, some inspiring and some sad. But I think the, what I put them together and think myself, I mean, you need to take the perspective here. You need to see the side of the healthcare system, the hospital, which is desperately trying to keep it from becoming a, a hot spot. OK. Yeah. On the other hand, though, what I think you need to do is make the case to them, look, you know, um, my mother has dementia caused by Lewy body disease um, and I am her caregiver. OK, here's the things I do for her. OK, um, I am willing to work with you to help you take care of her. Um, what would that mean? Well, you know, um, first of all, let me tell you about what her cognition, cognitive impairments are like. OK, um, uh, uh, is there some way that I can potentially communicate with her um, via if she was a, if she's someone who, for example, could tolerate a FaceTiming and whatnot and not be confused by it? Um, can we do that? In other words, can you take a little extra effort to watch over her to report back to me how she's doing? Perhaps even maybe can I stay there? Can, if, if, if there are fold out cot in that room that I can stay in, um, you know, I'll wear personal protective equipment. I won't leave the room. We found some hospital policies that allow a caregiver, but the condition is you cannot leave the room. You know, I won't leave the room. I'm not going to get up and take a walk because I want to stretch my legs. Um, so I think it's going to be a negotiation. Um, I will say, seeing now the other side, the last thing the hospital wants to deal with is, you know, someone screaming and yelling, saying, I want to come in, et cetera. So I think one needs to sort of tame one's emotions and say, how can we have a mature conversation about how best we're going to care for my relative who has moderate stage dementia and is at a high likelihood of getting quite ill from a delirium, which is only going to extend their hospital stay, which means greater chance of getting sicker using up a bed that's needed, et cetera. So I think there's the ability to kind of arrive at a reasonable sort of position on this. I think it's great too to hear this from a doctor, you know, because usually we hear it from the caregiver, like saying, oh, they wouldn't let me in or everything, but that 
all makes a lot of sense. And I mean, it doesn't hurt to ask. We are under extraordinary times. And to look at the caregiver as maybe a partner to help the hospital um, is a unique perspective that many people wouldn't think about that way. So I yeah, I mean, one of, my, one of my visions, like, you know, we're all kind of saying, you know, okay, we're going to get through this pandemic and we will get through this pandemic. We will. And when we, when we come out the other side, everyone says, you know, it'll never be the same. The world will be changed. And, you know, we, we both want to believe that and we don't. But the world will be changed. And I think it can be changed in ways that we'll look back and say it was awful that it happened. It was horrible it happened as bad as it did. And we'll deal with those issues. But maybe we've learned some things from this. And so I'll give you one thing that I've learned. The one thing I've learned is I want to imagine a future where there are certainly visitors to the hospital, you know, the friends that come by with an extra meal, et cetera. Great. But why don't we start to respect the fact that some patients may actually need and or otherwise benefit from having their caregiver be there, where the caregiver is a visitor, but it's a special kind of visitor. And what kind of policies can we set up in a hospital that acknowledges the role of the caregiver um, and expects a two-way exchange. In other words, because we're acknowledging your role, in return, here are some things that we would expect of you. And if you fail to do them, you're no different than a visitor who we're going to say, look, you know, you need to leave. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, I mean, you could think about these things from the design perspective. I mean, I trained and many hospitals still have semi-private rooms where there's like room for two patients. And you're like, that's in delirium inducing, you know. I mean, you know, their TV, their noise while you're trying to sleep. I mean, it's like, why? Well, most new hospitals in the future are single bed hospital rooms. Even better are rooms where there's room for the caregiver. There's the fold out bed and the table and whatnot. So, you know, I think in addition to those architectural changes that are occurring in care, let's make some real deep conceptual changes and acknowledge they're not just visitors. And that might be the campaign. You know, I'm not just a visitor, you know. Yeah, uh, and and so if you know, I'd like to look back a year from now and come back here, and we can talk about that because yeah. maybe that'll be one of the things that will say, well, you know, I wish it never happened, but at least some things came from it that made a difference. Absolutely, and thank you so much, um, Dr. Carl, for for bringing this to our attention. Um, I think it's a really worthy topic. Um, I think also what you've done is put the uh, spotlight on the caregiver um, and acknowledge them for the, the high level and quality care and the necessity um, of that relationship to the patient. So thank you for your work. Um, thank you for being a medical doctor who is bringing, uh, acknowledging this. I think that's wonderful. Um, and just to remind our viewers, um, Dr. Jason Carlowish is, you are the co-director of the Penn Memory Center. Um, so I'm sure you're getting a lot of experience with uh, dementia and uh, dementia patients and whatnot. So thank you so much for your work. Um, we will, as always, have these interviews um, on beingpatient.com. You can access them um, on our website and please sign up for our, our, our newsletter. We'll let you know when these talks are happening. Um, thanks again, Dr. Carlo Ish, and thanks everyone for watching. <laughs>